Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to a podcast, Med Family. I am the host, Eric Acker. I'm hosting again today with Karen. Hey. So I'm going to try to make a point this week to not sound tired because I was told last week by one of my fellow students that he listened to the podcast and I sounded exhausted. And it, it's true, I was pretty tired. Yeah. Well, we need to get into a habit of doing these on the weekend as opposed to during the week. We, we talk about it every weekend. Like, we're going to record on Sunday and Sunday happen. comes around and we're like, yeah, we'll record on Monday. <laughs> so I'm glad we actually record on Monday and not Tuesday because then I don't have to do the editing in the same night. Either case, uh, we we wrapped up our second week of internal medicine last week. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but we were in the ICU. So first week internal medicine was pulmonology clinic, 8.30 to 6, basically clinic schedule, seeing patients, you know, every half an hour or whatever. And and last week, we were the critical care team in the ICU of one of the local hospitals. And so we got to see and take care of a whole host of patients in the ICU. It wasn't just all COVID, which was good. I was, you know, you always worry about just seeing all of the same kind of patient. And I think from that experience last week, it was multiple different patients, a lot of the same thing kind of end result. But I don't know. How, how did you feel like the week went? I mean, I know you weren't in the ICU with me, obviously, but... You got to see me when I came home. and <laughs> I Well, so you had one patient pass away, multiple patients pass away. Are you guessing? Or you... <laughs> well, I know the one because that one really affected you. But I know, I and I know that you had some patients code, but I, I didn't think that they actually died. I think we had a patient die every day, but not always during the hours I was there. Okay. So it was, there was always like a patient that we had worked on or worked with during the day, and then they passed away at night. But I do kind of just want to get your perspective, because I think just seeing the spouse come home, I think that kind of gives you, you can get a good feel for how things went. Oh, well, I, I felt like most days you came home just fine. I think it was, what, Wednesday or Thursday. That was a hard day for you. And I could tell it was a hard day for you, and that was when the the one patient just decided to end end care and ended up passing away that day. And you had to help with the, declaring the death and all that. Yeah. So what, what did you? I guess besides like Wednesday being a hard day, like do you think? I, I'm not trying to trap you here. <laughs> I promise <laughs> you. I'm just trying to. I'm not sure what like, you're asking. <laughs> do Do you think that I enjoyed that week? Like, was it something that? Like, all the other days or weeks I came back from a rotation, was this week different than pediatrics? Well, I think, I don't know. There's only been two rotations where you've had hospital time. And I think that was peds and internal medicine. And I think I think you would like the hospital better than you like the clinic in that it's, I guess, quicker decisions and um, more immediate needs. So kind of have to digest all the information and solve the 
problem. I, I feel like you very much like to solve a problem. I don't know if this week was... I don't want to say it wasn't as interesting because I think you found it very interesting and you enjoyed it because you talked about it quite a bit. Although, obviously, it doesn't sound like we talked because I didn't know that he lost a patient every day. But as far as, like, learning to read the stats and what to look at when you go into a room, when you're looking at all of the monitors and your interactions with the staff there, I think you had a good experience this last week. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I And I, I do want to just cut right there and just say, like, I had a good experience because of the people I was with. I do want to give, I guess, credit where credit is due. My experience, I think, had had a lot to do with my preceptor being who he is. And then, and I'll get more into this in a second, this is about the structure of this particular week. But for the critical t- care team at this hospital, it comprised of basically a nurse practitioner who... She, I think it was a little bit also green, but she was pretty good at what she was doing. And then a medical resident, and he was a first-year resident in the family medicine program. And so they both did a lot to, both the medical resident and the nurse practitioner did a lot to try to catch me up on certain things and point me in the right direction here and there. And so I think without them, I would have had a very different experience, very likely anyway. (laughs) So... I, I did want to just go back and talk to you know about Karen's perspective. I think it's a provides a little bit of context, and then we can I think we probably will circle back a little bit to the end of this podcast about last week. So a little bit I guess context to the week. We were ICU. ICU is structured like I said. The, the critical care team is embedded basically within the ICU, and we didn't see every patient in the ICU because there's only certain patients who were deemed on our service, uh, I guess is how they would say it. And our team comprises of a nurse practitioner, my preceptor, who is also, he's a pulmonologist and does sleep medicine, but he apparently also does critical care. Uh, And then a first year medical resident from the uh, family medicine program. And then of course you have the entire ICU, which is comprised of nurses, uh, respiratory therapists and inter- interventional radiologists, you know, like a whole whole host of people, and then of course every specialty that rotates through there: nephrology, cardiology, etc. And then um, any hospitalist that kind of comes through as well. So there's a lot of people who are working, of course, in the ICU and kind of making the things making things happen. My week was more or less structured. In the daytime shift, because we didn't do a 24-hour shift or anything like that. They had nighttime staff to do all the nighttime stuff. The rule for my preceptor was that we needed to be there by 9.30 because that was the multidisciplinary rounds. And I think I mentioned that a little bit last week. Multidisciplinary rounds at 9.30. And we're on our feet probably for the next hour and a half, two hours, sometimes three hours, of just rounding on all the patients in the ICU. And... Once we did the multidisciplinary rounds, then our critical care team would just go back and pay closer attention to our patients. And we would go into the room, talk to the patient if the patient was talking, adjust settings, and you know, do a whole bunch of stuff and just get get the patient kind of set up for the day. And what, what, what do we need to accomplish today with this patient? And then move on to the next one and kind of keep doing that. And then once you were done with all of that, we would break for lunch. We would come back. And then basically the afternoon was either writing notes, which is what I did not do. I didn't write any notes. 
but either writing notes or doing procedures. So any inter internal jugular vein access that we needed to do, we, we did that. If we needed to intubate a patient, we would do that. We would, so we just went around and took care of anything that needed to get done, made sure things that we had ordered got done. And then by the end of the day, if there was nothing else to do, we just, I just went home. That was essentially it. And sometimes that was, you know, as early as 2.30 in the afternoon. That was one day. <laughs> one day. <laughs> or it could be, it could have been as late as, I think, six. It was a whole lot, you know, and... Like I mentioned last week, uh, the good rule of thumb is the pre-round on your patients. So, you know, you could get there at 9.30 and just listen to the, the grand rounds, basically. But you probably should get there a couple hours earlier, look at your patient list. And I, I, was, I was assigned four patients that I would be presenting during our critical care team rounds. And uh, by the end of the week, I was up to, I think, six patients I was in charge of at least presenting I wasn't really <laughs> I wasn't in charge of like any care plan presentation anything like that it was just mostly what went up what, what did we do yesterday what what happened overnight and uh, anything else that might be interesting essentially so that that was that's essentially the structure of the rotation I have a my I have little notes here <laughs> like what would I do differently I think I would do differently is preparation to this like if I would have known I was going to be in the ICU I would have probably watched a, a few videos on ventilation systems like how we vent patients and how you adjust settings and then maybe get a little bit more maybe organized in how we look at patients based on labs <laughs> and then like maybe brush up on some of the, the high high point critical care stuff like cardiac emergencies blood pressure the hypotension like if I would have spent a little bit more time just kind of brushing up on the high points I felt like I probably could have dealt with a few things better does that I mean yeah that that's fair this is one of the ones that you haven't had because a lot of a lot of your rotations you've had the online portion first so you've done the bulk of your studying before you even start a rotation whereas this one you kind of just jumped right in right after taking a shelf so the I feel like you feel less prepared with this one than you have in the past. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And especially since I was thinking that this one might be a cardiology rotation, I think I was more geared for a cardiology rotation. Uh, not that I could look at an EKG you know, page and know exactly what I was looking at, but I wasn't really quite ready for pulmonology. And I think even after the first week of clinic, I was still trying to like, okay, I need to figure out... Ooh, what what we do in pulmonology exactly? What what's our bag of tools that we reach for when we are treating a pulmonology patient? Because you you kind of learn that as you go into some of these rotations that there there are some very much go to things that we do in medicine, and every specialty has those go to things that go to medicines that they will use very often. And so I was still trying to get my head wrapped around the go-to tools in pulmonology in the clinic and then to be thrown into ICU. Just simply like what I, what I would do differently if I had another ICU rotation, really hit the ventilation, like all the vents and how, how, the, how they work, really understanding how they work and what they're meant for and what they're trying to accomplish and what to adjust and then how to look at labs and go, is the vent working? 
the way you want it to. <laughs> and I think that would have solved a lot of problems because I think the entire week I was still struggling with what's a peep. I understand respiration rate. I understand tidal volume, but I don't under quite understand like how you're messing with some of that stuff or what's, why is it pressure control? You know, why are we on volume control versus pressure control? Why are we on SIMV? Like, I don't, I didn't quite understand like why we were doing what we were doing on some of the vents. And I think if I had gone through some of the videos that I did over the weekend, I would have probably been just a little, a little less mystified by what I was seeing in the ICU. So, I mean, that was essentially, that's essentially my, what I would do differently and maybe get there a little bit earlier and still, because I always felt like there was always so much information on every patient and I could only really lean a little bit. My, my best day was, I think, when I, I ran into the, the nighttime nurse practitioner who was running the show at night and just being like, just tell me about these four patients. And she gave me a quick rundown and that was great, but she had a lot more insight into all the patients because she spent the entire night digging through their entire medical record. So she understood who these patients were. <laughs> and two hours of pre-rounding didn't give me that picture on a lot of these patients. Like I could get a pretty good glimpse of COPD, their COVID positive pneumonia, and the ABG shows elevated co2 levels and a rising creatinine like but without any real context like the past history maybe you don't need it for some of that stuff but sometimes having that medical history can give you some insights into maybe what's going on with your patient and i think that would have been something i wish i had a little bit more time to go back and dig into some of these patients um that being said that kind of leads me to my the highs and low point points of the <laughs> I think the high points would have been I really, I really enjoyed all the procedures I, I got to be a part of. Uh, I didn't do any procedure like I was never like handed a scalpel and said go ahead and place a <laughs> a central line on this patient or anything like that. But I did get to assist my preceptor in placing IJs, and then we did intubate one patient. And then seeing, seeing so many things, like we did a TTM, I think it's a thermal a temperature, thermal management, something like that. And it's used post-STEMI. Someone who's had a heart attack and after the heart attack, after, after the cath lab has done their work, sometimes you have the option to basically lower the patient's core body temperature to give them a little bit more time to heal. And then you can inch it up a little bit. And so I did get to see that being utilized. So there was a lot of things that I got to see that I don't think the average medical student gets to see. Again, being part of those procedures, I I had watched a few, during some of our downtime, I had watched a few videos and tutorials on how to do these things, just in case on the off chance my preceptor said, Eric, why don't you go ahead and do this? He never did, obviously, but by watching it enough times and watching him do it at least twice, I knew what the next step was so I can try to help him out as best as possible. So it was just kind of an opportunity for me to quiz myself on how I would do it <laughs> and see, knowing what he, where he was at in the process. It, I don't know, it's just a good, it's a very good learning experience. I don't think a lot of medical students would have gotten. The low points would be, <laughs> as Ken Karen alluded to, the patients that you work on and work with and then passing away. 
And so that's, I think that's a low point. But I think it was, I mean, it's different if they pass away and you know that you have done everything that you can. I think the low point for you is when that one person passed and you knew that there was more that could have been done, but they just kind of gave up. I think that was, that was what hit you the hardest. Yeah, I mean, the cons were you jump in on those morning rounds, you get thrown everything at you very quickly, and everyone there has kind of already got acclimated to the pace, the information, how to digest it, how to how to think about it clinically, and how to develop your clinical picture based off of the information you're getting. And so I, I hadn't really developed those skills, and so you get kind of get thrown in there really quick. And if you don't adapt... It's going to basically be torture for the entire week because if you, I think I was telling Garrett on Wednesday, I, I need to try to find a, a systematic way to take the information and form a clinical picture. Otherwise, I'm going to be continue to be very lost, and I have no idea how to even offer suggestions or offer any help or guidance at all, or even. I mean, even be a good gopher, essentially, which is what my medical resident said that I, my job was, is you're the gopher <laughs> of the team. You just do whatever they tell you to do. So you are getting thrown a lot of information all at once. And then it is the ICU. So these are all critically ill patients. I think we watched enough TV shows that we kind of like to think that a lot of these patients are walking out of the ICU. And the truth is, I don't think I ever saw a single patient walk out of the ICU. I mean, they, they were wheeled out. <laughs> you know, they, they got a little bit better and there was no need for them to be on the ICU floor. Then they got wheeled down to a different hospital floor. And, and you know, somebody else who was sicker got wheeled in. But, uh, I mean, a lot of these patients are very sick. And, I mean, I, it was even just one over the weekend I came back on Monday to talk to my preceptor because I was like, oh, what if, what if we adjusted the respiration rate on this patient? Could we have in alkalizing the patient's pH? And he's like, yeah, that could have been possible, but she did die on Saturday, so it's not a big deal. Uh, you know, it's like, and that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the underlying issue. It was the lactic acid buildup that was caught, you know, going on that was we were trying to deal with and no matter how much sodium bicarbonate and dialysis we gave the patient, it just wasn't, just wasn't cutting it. So there's a lot of death in the ICU. And I think that's just a, that's a very big reality. I think a lot of times in medicine, we, we think that by and large, we're just keeping people alive. And, you know, if they get onto our service, we, we treat them, they, they get better and they go home. But I think unfortunately the reality is that a lot of these patients don't live and it has nothing to do with your level of care or you know how much you care actually for the patient. They just don't make it for one reason or another. You're going to have to get used to the word death or dead. Yeah. Most of the patients that pass, there's a, we have some notable exceptions. <laughs> what? Sorry. Uh, in, in, I, I took a death and dying class in college and oh. they're, they're always like... They're always like, you have to say to the family they are dead. You cannot use like past, past or, or they are no longer with us. Or, like, <laughs> you have to tell them that they're dead. Dead. <laughs> it helps us. them with the grieving process. <laughs> I was just laughing because I had made that statement, then you kept going on and you didn't use the word dead. I didn't dead. use that word dead. No, I said past. <laughs> That's another, I guess, aspect. Academically, we understand how many patients just withdraw care. And that's, that's a nice way of saying they're either their family has come into the picture and said, 
my father or mother would not have wanted to be on a ventilator. It was their wish to not be on a ventilator and to pass naturally. So go ahead and withdraw the ventilator, withdraw the medicine, let them pass naturally, go to just um, like hospice level palliative care on this patient. And the reality was <laughs> in the ICU, a good number of the patients that we had worked on that passed fell into this category that we were working on and working on them and the family member, family got involved and expressed what the wishes were and then we withdrew care overnight or whatever it was and the the person passed on uh, or died as Karen <laughs> wants me to say. <laughs> Gotta get used to it. And there's some notable exceptions obviously. Um, yes. Like th- there was one that we had that we worked on a little bit and it turned out that the person, by the time they had made it to the facility, they'd basically been without oxygen for a significant quantity of time. And so they were essentially brain dead. So that's a little deflating that you're like, oh, man, we did all this work. And that's for nothing. Not for nothing. It's but not I mean, for it's, nothing because the family feels like, I mean, it, the it, it, you get the opportunity for the family to come in and say their goodbyes and... So, I mean, and then, of course, there's, like, organ donations. I mean, there's other things to consider as well, but... Yeah, but I did think it was interesting, like, when we were... When you had said that you debriefed with the one one nurse, like, when you were on the floor, they had talked about the levels of... You have... They're a level one, or they're a level two, or they're a level three. Yeah, co- code status is, I think, what Karen's referring to. Yeah, so this is how much we can do in order to keep them alive versus we can do everything or we can do nothing kind of thing. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of, I think, medical professionals who I think want to uh, talk about this a lot, and this is a good thing to talk about. And I think making sure your family knows what you would like to have in your end-of-life care or whatever it might be. Uh, making sure your family knows or advanced directives, you know, some sort of paperwork, you know, signing that sort of stuff so that it's not guesswork. It's like, you know, if you want to do a DNR, if you, like you say, well, if I, if I'm basically brain dead, just go ahead and pull the plug. Don't put me on a ventilator, like put that in writing. So it's not up to your, your sister or your brother to, to go, well, I had that conversation with him and this is what he would have wanted. I don't, it, it would be preferable if we did not put that on our family members. <laughs> that being said, Eric and I have not done that at this time. We have time. not done that. So we have we... talked about it, but like I know for... It's a sliding scale. It it's is. like, well, it today, if I, you know, we have young kids, so we're going to do what we, what we have to to keep you alive because as long as there's a chance you're going to come back, then we got to, we got to try it. But like if I'm 85 years old and you know, riddled with cancer, then just, just, you know, pull the plug a little bit. Yeah. But I will say from like, so the first year of medical school, my grandma passed and my mom was her power of attorney. Power of attorney. Thank you. And I will say that for my mom, that was a very nice thing to have everything in writing and a DNR and all that stuff so that she, she didn't have to make a decision. She didn't have to make the decision. It was made for her. She was just executing what, my grandma had put forth, especially since like there was other family members, extended family and all that. So in that regard, I think it is, it is a blessing to do for your family, especially when you get towards later, later in life. It can be really 
how to say it, it can be really shocking for family members, especially ones that have never been to an ICU, to be ushered into your room or into a patient's room and like their, their loved one is hooked up to a ton of different monitors and you know things are beeping and moving there's cords and wires and tubes everywhere like it's a it's a pretty in i mean it's the icu the intensive care unit it's intense it's a it's a lot for a loved one to walk in on and it's a lot for a medical student to just walk in on and be like whoa we are we are really taking this patient's care to the next level like we are monitoring everything and those well i don't i guess i don't know at this hospital but those rooms are quite large compared to your average pretty good size your average like hospital you, suite your your uh, your delivery room was bigger than in either case these rooms are relatively large but i guess my point was is that it can be a very overwhelming situation and you see all these tubes and all these things and you think that like we've pulled out all the stuff like like hypothetically here like you have a patient who is just heavily sedated they're not on a they're not on a ventilator they're on like a CPAP machine but like that just it means that they have like a mask on and the oxygen's flowing through the mask and they have obviously IVs set up so that the sedation can go in and then of course whatever medications were pushing at that time so it looks like a lot but it's not really a lot and but that can still be incredibly overwhelming to a patient uh, patient's family to the point where they might think that you know like basically they're being kept alive by a whole bunch of machines and you know where it's like well it's CPAP so you know they they are initiating all their breaths it's not like we are forcing air down their throat they're initiating all their breaths and they're just sedated to the point where they can't they're not conscious but a patient family might walk into that situation and be like, well, this is not what he would have wanted. And if you kind of forced your family members to make those decisions, well, then the outcomes could be, I don't know, less than ideal or, you know, whatever. I don't know. I don't want to pass a judgment on any family that has to, has to go through something like this. But my point being is just at least talk to a few loved ones and make a DNR. And don't, don't use the words, if there is no significant chance for survival, because in it we 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 had just kind of heard that a couple of times when we were looking at some of the codes where it was very odd language where it's like there's wiggle room here because in like medicine sometimes it's like well you know like what are my odds i'm sure i can look at the instances and like okay well if a patient's been on a ventilator for 20 days the odds of them waking up Obviously, it's a lot lower than if they were on it for 10 days. But, like, at what point am I pulling the tube? Just give me some black and white here. Like, you don't want to be on a tube. You don't want this. Like, don't don't, don't put it back on the medical professionals. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just, I guess my, my point is just to... Be clear on your wording. That way you're not, you're, you're not creating doubt guesswork or or that because that's putting it back on either the medical facility or your again your family who it's a kind of a blessing to take that decision away from them in a sense because there's no guilt or feeling like they killed you or something yeah (laughs) they don't have to they don't feel like the all the pressure of the world is on them to make a decision that they've because the worst case scenario is like you've never had that conversation with them. <laughs> and you know, what do you think they would have wanted? And just like, I have no idea. 
no idea and you're forcing me to make this decision like it's it's hard I might I be cutting out some bits of that just to <laughs> run the <laughs> well, main point. It was point. interesting hearing you talk about like the ICU because I mean I have been in an ICU before, and like my ICU experience versus yours significantly different, right? Because one, you're treating patients, and but like due to COVID, like there was. Like one, maybe one family member allowed? Almost not at all. I mean, if you were COVID positive, you definitely got no family, no visitors. Yeah. And then like four or five years ago, I don't know. Like when I went to the ICU to visit like my grandma, there was (laughs) uh, my 13 cousins and and my aunts and uncles. And like we had about 20 people shoved in that room. Like... Let's have a conversation about what's going on with your grandmother. (laughs) And ultimately, she came. She came home for hospice care, and we all stayed at the house until until time came for her to pass. (laughs) Well, (laughs) sorry, I'm not (laughs) until she died. (laughs) But um, it's just interesting what a few years will do, and. Like, if you ask me, like, I would much rather die at home with my family surrounding me than I would in an ICU room all by myself. Yeah, that was, I guess, another con. It could be a pretty, I, I can imagine it being a pretty lonely experience. If you are conscious, like, you're not sedated and you are fully awake and all you really have is this TV that you can watch and listen to. And then the occasional nurse pops in to see how you're doing. You know, if you need to move to the bathroom and she helps you out with that, like, but that's your only real human in, interaction, like, and you're just you feel miserable and sick. Like, I can see how that can be a very depressing, dark period for a patient. And so during this time period where we're not letting a lot of visitors uh, see patients in the hospital, it's just it's that little extra, little extra bit of darkness that I think it just hurts patients a little bit. And I'm not trying to say like hospitals are trying to hurt patients. It's obviously. These precautions are meant, uh, the intention is to protect patients as a whole and protect people and prevent spreads of infection. So I'm not trying to like bash it, but you know, on, uh, there's, a, there's a human side of medicine. Like we are administering drugs that are supposed to help you out. But like if you're just depressed and feeling awful and like there's no, you, you just, you feel like there's no hope. I think it just makes it that much harder for you to get better than if you have like it's again like Karen said like go back four years before this pandemic and you have the spouse 24 7 is sitting in the ICU room right next to his you know spouse of 45 years they've never been apart never spent a night apart from each other in 30 30 years and he's there with her or he you know she's there with him or whatever it is and now you fast forward to four years into now and again they've never been apart for 30 years of their entire marriage but now for the last three weeks he sits alone in the icu bed i mean one of the i think sweet things i saw was one older gentleman he had a picture of his like wife just sitting on his desk like he must you know he someone had packed it up or he packed it up before he went to the hospital and it was like he brought it and it's like sitting on his food cart or whatever so like he at least is looking at his spouse, you know, you just get to see his spouse in some way every day. And it's like, that's a, that's a kind of a sweet thing. 
But you know, if it was four years ago, his spouse would be right there in the room with him. Yeah, but you have to you have to hand it to the staff in the ICU is a different breed than the staff at other places, and for the most part, or at least my interactions with ICU staff, they are they are pretty special people to be able to be able to work in that area and see what they see and still be upbeat and happy and caring to those that are still cognizant. So my last bullet point here, and this is, <laughs> Sorry. Gonna, no, no, it's, this is my last bullet point for the cons of okay. you're doing a rotation in the ICU is you're going to look dumb a lot of the time. So I was, I think I was relating to Karen and a few other students throughout the week where it's like, you start off this, I felt like I started this rotation feeling incredibly, incredibly dumb, like not under, not, I'm not getting any information. I'm not being, I'm not pulling together any sort of clinical picture. And then something clicks. And for me, it was like on Wednesday <laughs> where I was like, I can, I'm starting to see a clinical picture. I'm starting to maybe put together a couple of diagnoses here. I'm starting to think a little bit outside the box and maybe we, I'm looking up some stuff on up to date, trying to figure out like maybe should, could we try this lab? Should we look here? Management of this patient? Could we try this? I'm starting to get a better clinical picture on Wednesday, but you're just like it's almost like you're worse than on Monday and Tuesday. Like having no idea was better than having some crazy idea. Because <laughs> like uh, I think I was, oh gosh, I was thinking, oh I have. This um, this patient seems like maybe he's got instead of a, a reaction to the heparin, maybe maybe he's got this hemoglobin C, uh, and because of the hypoxic conditions of his body, it's sickling the red blood cells and causing ischemic damage to certain end organs, and like I'm pitching this idea to my preceptor, and he's just like. Well, that's an idea, but, you know, it's like... We're going to go gonna, with the most likely one. We're going to stay with the simple ideas here. We're not going for the crazy ones. And just to recap, you see a lot... You get a lot all at once. There's a lot of death. And then you look dumb a lot of the time. The pros... I and The three I wrote down just really quick was... Well, two, I guess. Experiencing death. Uh, I know that was a con. Like we experience a lot of death in the ICU, and that kind of sucks because it does suck. But the pro, why it's a pro for this rotation is that there's a lot of like things that we can conceptualize in medicine, especially in classes, and we watch you know any sort of media. If, you, if you're watching Grey's Anatomy, Scrubs, House, whatever, you're going to see death on those things. So conceptually, you know, patients will die. But it's very different when they're your patient. I mean, it, I'm a medical student. This is really, this is really not my patient. But I, you know, I was part of the team. I was an integral part of this team, <laughs> as much as that, if you want to believe that or not. But but you 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 feel a connection to, you know, I'm there. I'm I'm part of this team. We're all working. I presented on this patient, and so to see a patient die, it does hit you a little bit different. And but I think it's something that you do have to experience. And again, like I got I got to observe a death exam. That's not something I think anyone really wants to do, but it's something that I think from time to time as a medical 
professionals we might have to do. Uh, so kind of seeing it, how it's done with a lot of sensitivity to the family, that can be a really good experience. I mean, this is that death and dying stuff, right? Like we have to get used to death because like no one's getting out of this earth alive. And so as much as, as medical professionals, we're trying to keep people on earth as long as possible within reason, obviously, like we don't want to torture people until they breathe their last. Like we are here to keep you comfortable as much as we are to try to keep you alive. I think seeing death is a good thing, especially I think in times when you don't really agree with either family's decision or patient's decision. And I'm not talking unethical things. I'm just talking like Karen kind of alluded to a patient where from my perspective as a, as a third year medical student, you know, take that with a grain of salt or take well, that for what it is. Well, it wasn't just your perspective. Like one, I mean, the, one the of people the nurses this... had chimed in and said something fairly similar. Yeah. I mean, other people have, I mean, I think a lot of people could have the similar perspective that this particular person, he wasn't on a ventilator. He wasn't doing, you know, like he, he wasn't the patient you, if you walked down the hallway and you had to pick somebody who was going to die that day, he was not that person. And he opted to withdraw care, which is well within his right. And I didn't. I don't. I don't walk in his shoes. I. I don't. I'm a 33 year old male, and he is a you know 70 something or whatever. I don't remember his age, but he obviously led a very different life than I did. He has different life experiences, et cetera, et cetera. You try to be empathetic. You try to put yourself in their shoes. But, like, I, I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't like the idea of withdrawing care. In my mind, is like, you know, I would I would want to keep fighting. But he's not me. No, but I think I think what it really comes down to, I mean, as much as y- you would think that you would keep fighting in that instance, I think what it really comes down to is in that ward, you have very few wins. And the wins are what keep you going and keep you trying hard and keep your spirits up and... He was almost like a guaranteed win for the I wouldn't floor. Say, I really wouldn't say he was a guaranteed, but well, like but he, he wasn't circling the drain. Yes. And so I don't know, like I can't remember what the what you had told me the nurse had said, but from my from my perspective looking in, it was more along the lines of it, it's it's not the choice I would make and then it's also it kinda it kind of defeats you a little bit because you there are so few people that move out of that floor that like the ones that you invest in and you have hope in and to have that hope kind of die along with the person (laughs) (laughs) because like you 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 cautiously hope right like you cautiously hope for each patient but you have more hope for others than than yeah. some. And each of us, we, we go to medical school with the idea of curing diseases and treating patients and getting them better. And so it, it is kind of built somewhat into our psyche that we want all of our patients to get better and do better. And, and, and if they don't, it, it maybe there's a little feeling of it reflects on you or maybe it's a feeling of just like... Ah, I, you know, and maybe it's that you, I've watched too many Scrubs episodes. Maybe it's, you know, you can barge into the room and give them a good pep talk and like lift their spirits up and then they keep, you know, it's not, not anything like that at all. And 
I, I'm obviously still kind of struggling with it a little bit, but like it's not again not an unethical thing. Like the person did something that was well within their right. They didn't do anything illegal. We didn't do anything illegal. We didn't do anything unethical. It was well within the patient's right, and the patient is an autonomous human being that gets to make their own decisions, their own medical decisions. And just because I don't agree with them doesn't mean that <laughs> it wasn't right for them. I, I don't know. It's it's complicated, but I think it's good for medical students to see that and to experience, and then to watch other more experienced medical professionals deal with it and how they handle it and how they approach the issue. Because like my precept has been around for at least 18 years doing this kind of work. And so he's got a lot of wisdom, I would say, and a lot of experience when dealing with this sort of stuff. And uh, I would hope that if I was in a similar situation, I could find a way to deal with it like he did. I don't know. It's, I guess it's one of those situations where you have to kind of take yourself out of out of the equation. So, I mean, anyway, this this episode, I mean, we're, we're about at 50 minutes right here as far as what we're recording. And so obviously I'm still trying to work through how last week went. So obviously if you get to this podcast and you get to this part of the podcast and you're like, wow, it's only 30 minutes long. What's going on? I've cut out a lot of stuff because I, I still haven't been able to quite pair up exactly and work my way through everything that I've kind of have just gone through with the ICU. And I, I think that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, it's definitely was a, a quite an experience. Um, well, it's better dealing with having patients die when you are not the primary caregiver. So you're not putting that on yourself. You are learning how to deal with a patient's death outside of yourself before you have to deal with the patient's death when you are the one giving immediate care. Yeah. Um, are you basically saying kind of because I wasn't, I wasn't my preceptor, so therefore it's not as much of a... Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because you're not the one making the ultimate decisions. Your preceptor is or the MP. And two, you also have, you said your MP and your the resident were fairly new. So they're also kind of going through this as well. Yeah. I mean, we even... To some extent. Yeah. This is kind of a pro as well. Um, because when you, at least for me, when I walk on the floor, I always, I wore my white coat because I, that was kind of the, I thought the agreement more or less that my school kind of said is that you, whenever you go anywhere, go with your white coat. And sometimes when you're walking on the floor and you're the white coat, people will ask you your opinion of something. And so we, we had a particular case where somebody was having uh super, uh, ventricular tachycardia and the nurse practitioner was obviously like, she has a license. She's has a lot more experience, and so she's obviously. And then she was like, she asked me like what my opinion was at one point. Like, do you think I should give this medication? And I was like, uh, sure, that sounds great. <laughs> like, I I didn't. It, it felt like she was kind of consulting me in a way because I mean, preceptor hadn't gotten there by that point. Like, he hadn't arrived for the morning, and you know, thankfully she she had enough wisdom to go, I'm not going to rely on this medical student. I'm going to call the preceptor. <laughs> so she called my preceptor and asked his opinion. And like, as soon as she stated like, oh, well, we have this patient is in heart rates in the 190s and uh, superventricular tachycardia. And I was like, oh, superventricular tachycardia. Ooh, I remember there's a drug that we use exactly for this situation. And then I was like, 
adenosine. <laughs> and then as soon as I said, like, right before I said it, like, she was like, you want me to give the patient 0.6 adenosine? You want me to cardiovert him? Like, okay. But I, that's kind of a pro as well. Like, things that you learn in medical school will be, like, suddenly, like, wait a minute. That's at totally applicable in this situation. And it worked. It worked really well. And it was, it was kind of neat to watch that happen. So that's a pro as well. But you also kind of get consulted as well. You get kind of looked at as an authority. Even though you're like, I'm a third-year medical student, like, probably most of the nurses on this floor would be more competent in a code than I would be. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's quite an experience. I, I definitely would recommend it for a lot of medical students. Don't don't shy away from it, I would say. And even if you don't want to do hospital medicine, it, it's still, I think, a, 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 way to, a way to learn medicine very quickly <laughs> and see a lot in medicine. Yeah. We're running a little long. Yeah, so. but, uh, the reason I, I wanted to kind of bring it back to is what you thought you saw last week. Because I, I guess what I, I've been trying to work my way through it. And I've been trying to, you know, what have I discovered about myself and where I want to be in medicine based off of last week. And like I, I really did enjoy it. Like, <laughs> it was very enjoyable to have very complex issues that you have to kind of think your way through and come to a decision on what you're going to do. And you are following some basic guidelines. Like if a patient's in this situation, you follow these guidelines. But it was enjoyable, I guess, is a word that you could say. Like it was something that I was pretty happy to do. Uh, so I do like solving problems, and that was great. I'm not 100% sure I would want to do ICU you know, long-term or anything like that. Like, I wouldn't want to be, like, critical care only and, you know, seven days a week ICU care. I'm not sure if that would be the most enjoyable thing for me, but at least what I felt like this week showed that there are some aspects of internal medicine and hospital medicine that I do really enjoy. So if I was going into this rotation trying to figure out maybe if surgery versus internal medicine was where I wanted to be, I you know, I might very well be happy in internal medicine. Yeah. Anyway, that, that was kind of what I was trying to bring it back to is, could you tell if I enjoyed it more than other rotations? Or if you take Wednesday out of the equation, because Wednesday was just a bad day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you talked about this rotation more than you have talked about others. And so... I took that as you were enjoying yourself more. And I think you were a little bit harder on yourself on this one than you were on others. I think you I wanted to succeed and impress more maybe than you have the others because, I mean, you are wanting a good letter or yeah. whatnot. And so <laughs> if this is something that you want to do, you're a little bit more invested in it. Well, and this is not my first core rotation. This is... Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm towards. I'm now more towards the end of my core portion of medical school than you know. I you know the name closer to the beginning. I'm I'm over halfway now. Yeah. So there's somewhat of an expectation that I have it more together <laughs> than my you know my family medicine rotation. So I when I'm not getting it, when I'm not when I'm just struggling, like it really frustrates me. But that's something that I, I think I like about myself a little bit is that when it 
when it frustrates me, it just means I, I got to work at it harder. I just got to keep working at it because it will bug me if I, if I just can't do it. I think you're right, though. I, I do want to impress my preceptor. I do want to get a good letter of recommendation. And this is, of course, as we've said, I'm considering internal medicine versus surgery. So I really want to give this all, my all because if this is where I want to end up, this is where I'm going to end up. I really want to be getting as much out of it as possible. Yeah. Anywho, I know it's uh, going a it's, bit long. It's been, well, it's been a long week. I think for the most part, you left the house between 7 and 7.30 every morning. And most, most with the exception of that one day, you didn't go home till a little past 6. So it's, it's kind of harkened back to island days this this last week and oh. I well no that's fine and I think it's going to be similar come other portions of your IM and um, surgery rotations as well so mm. we're just gearing up for a little bit more difficult year yeah <laughs> and that's okay but we have been at home most of the time in time for races with the kids and most of the time most of the time yeah Either way, I, like I think I said earlier, if you're looking at the clock on the podcast and it says 35 minutes, I've cut out a lot of stuff because, again, I'm still kind of working through this and a lot of my working through things is talking through it. And I, 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 I always want to be an encouragement to my fellow medical students, so I might, I might re-listen to this in post-production and go, ooh, yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't, I didn't mean to say it like that. <laughs> or this maybe I spent. Also, this, this podcast is also like a preemptive, we are getting used to speaking about, about odd things and just kind of be put on the spot so that when it comes to interviews, we've got this. Yeah. I mean, this podcast <laughs> doubles as a lot of things for myself. <laughs> anyway, I think that's probably good for the week. Next week, of course, we, we will have finished off. Uh, this pulmonology rotation. So I hope you guys have a good rest of your week. Um, we did we did get some comments, uh, some messages through Instagram asking us some direct questions. I don't think we were going to address that as a a main topic on a podcast, but happy to answer any questions you have. I hopefully we answered that particular person's question well enough. Um, and of course, you can find us on. Instagram at MedFamilyMD. Thank you. And any podcasting platform, Spotify, Apple. Yeah. You, and if you want to rate us um, on iTunes, that does help us out a little bit. We, again, we don't make any money off of this thing, but if we can find a way to reach other medical students, other prospective students who are considering this journey, and we can hopefully shed a little bit of light on what it's like on a week-to-week basis and we would like to be able to do that as best as we can. Uh, anyway, have a good rest of your week, and we will talk to you uh, next week. Bye.